I became obsessed with this mission to help people do things in real life. We tried this experiment of texting people and it kind of blew up. The retention was incredible. It started going viral. I sacrificed all the money that I had earned in order to fund the initial version nudge. I don't accept the idea that you can't validate what you're trying to do without money or that you can't validate it without quitting your job. This is not a joke, this idea that we only have one life to live. The more you can really think about that, like, can you think about that every morning? I think it makes it a lot easier to do the scary things that are necessary. Welcome back to Passion Project Pending. This is your host, Rosie. If you're new here, I'm so happy you decided to tune in. Passion Project Pending is your new source of truth for what entrepreneurship really looks like. The good, the bad, the inevitably ugly. So according to a poll in 2021, 92% of the people surveyed who seriously considered starting a business did not follow through. So the top five reasons that keep you from starting a business, according to this poll, the top five fears. The first is failure. Second is imposter syndrome. Rejection is inevitable. Lack of experience or education. And then lack of funds. That is a huge one. There are so many aspects to starting a business. There's also a wide range of businesses you could start. There's also this idea of imposter syndrome and the mental block I believe a lot of us face when considering turning a passion project into a business or just doing anything out of the ordinary in terms of career and expectations that we tend to carry with us from childhood to adulthood. The conversations on this podcast will help you see how others got started on a dream and turn their dream into reality through perseverance, sacrifice, and determination. We love. So welcome. Thanks again. And let's get into today's today's vibe. John Peterson is the CEO and co-founder of The Nudge, a company that will text you phone things to do in your city. Originally studying economics and computing at UCLA for his undergraduate degree, he then became a growth analyst at American Airlines before moving on to become a growth consultant for six years. While working as a consultant, he also created a product called Nine Financial that analyzed public stocks and delivered recommendations and sold this to friends as a side hustle. Later, he founded the company Live Day, which was a social network sharing local itineraries, and partnering with Lyft, Airbnb, and other major brands to do so. Four years ago, he founded The Nudge with his sister Sarah, designed to get people out of the house and off their phones to connect in real life doing fun things around their city. In this episode, we discuss John's career history, relationship with entrepreneurship, and more. This is the biggest company where I've had a chance to interview the founders, so I am beyond ecstatic to be releasing this as the first episode of season two of the podcast, which, by the way, don't fully understand what seasons mean here, but I will look into that and get back to you. John's experiences were extremely educational, especially for where I'm at just in life with the podcast and then relating to my personal dreams and goals with entrepreneurship. He was also very gracious to agree to this interview and share the wisdom that he did in terms of hiring, running a startup, setting goals with a new company, looking for funding, and more. I can't wait for you to hear it. Hi, John. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm really excited to interview you about your work experience and then what you do now for The Nudge. Thank you. I'm super excited to chat with you. Awesome. Okay. So my first question for you is now having worked in industry for over 15 years with a variety of roles, 
And then having originally studied what you did, economics and computing, how big of a role do you think what you studied impacted your career trajectory and all those experiences that you chose for yourself? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. So I initially felt like it didn't matter. And when I remember when I graduated in college and I was doing consulting, I regretted not studying things that were just more interesting to me, like personally, not career-wise. And not that I wasn't interested when I studied, but I remember being like, man, I should have just studied English because, you know, I'm not going to have time to deep dive into literature, but I would have really enjoyed that, I think. And I love reading. But as I get later in my career, I realized that I take for granted a lot of the things that I learned. So with economics and computing, it's very quanty, did a lot of programming. And it's only once I've gotten further along and seen people from different backgrounds operate in either a consulting or a tech startup environment, that you realize that these things really do matter. Like people who were doing like quantitative backgrounds often just do better at certain things. And you might just be like, oh, they're not really like a quantitatively minded person, but you realize that, oh no, they study, you know, math or computer science or something like that. And so I think that it helps a little bit, but overall, I don't think it really matters. I used to think it mattered zero. I think it matters just a little bit, but I wouldn't worry about it. Like whatever you study, don't let that determine at all what you try to do with your life. Yeah. I asked that because I feel like what I studied has a really big impact, but I'm also only three years in and I'm probably looking to pivot one day, but I think there's some resistance to pivoting the more you get in to like a work that involved what you study. So here's, a, I can give you some perspective. So I've done a lot of hiring at this point. And when I look at someone's resume, I almost never look at what they studied. The only exception to that would be engineers. Like if you didn't study computer science and I'd want to see what your career was, but outside of just a straight up programmer, I'm looking at what they've done in their career. I'm not looking at what they studied at all. Okay. That's helpful to know. Good to know. So with all your different experiences, I'd love to touch on each one briefly. And I got this information from your LinkedIn, by the way. But just to understand what those experiences taught you, again, the whole career journey, I think it's really helpful to know other people's mindset on their experiences when reflecting. So for example, I know you were a growth analyst at American Airlines, and then you founded Nine Financial, and then also you were a growth consultant for, I think, six years, and then the experience of founding Live Day. So if you could just kind of go through that a little bit and talk about those experiences, why you chose them, what they might have taught you, how, like, looking back, they kind of connect or don't, something like that. Yeah, totally. So American Airlines was really an internship that I did while I was in college. They had this program that was very experimental, designed to see if they could get college students to become frequent flyer members. For a lot of people, you start to accrue these frequent flyer miles and then you're kind of attached to that airline. And so they did this program where they picked a person at several major colleges throughout the country. And they basically were like, do whatever you want, but your job is to try to get people to sign up. And so I don't know if there's a lot of interesting stories there, but it was one of my first experiences where I didn't have someone telling me what to do for a project or a job. It was really just like, yeah, you know the objective and good luck and report in on what you're doing, but you're going to decide. And I loved that. I had never had that kind of freedom before in a job. And that's very similar to what working in a startup is like. 
So that was kind of an early taste of like, man, I really like this idea of not having a boss and being able to do what I want. Then Nine Financial was a really a side hustle that I did while I was in consulting. So maybe I'll start with consulting. I, after I graduated school, I had no idea what I wanted to do in the short term, but long term, I was like, oh, I want to start a company one day and come back to the Bay, which is where I'm from. But I was too scared to just do that. I felt like I wasn't qualified to do it, which wasn't true. But I was like, no, I need training of some sort. Consulting seems like a legit career. And so I went into consulting and I think it was great training in how to be a pro. I was doing a very like quantitative role at a very quant heavy consulting firm. And so I got a lot of training in analytics and lightweight data science. And of course, if you do consulting, you learn about a lot about like forecasting and market research and how to interview people and how to do surveys. So that was all good training. But the whole time I was there, I knew that it was really just training. And if I did it again, I would have either done it for like a year or two or not done it at all. Because when I was there, I was like, oh, I'll be here for like two years and then I'll move on. And I didn't for several years for a variety of reasons. The side hustle was I was really into investing at the time, just as a, like a passion project, really. And I was, the way that I think about things is I tried to go to the historical source of expertise on the subject. You know, there's all these like trending books and, you know, um, shows where you can learn about things. But when I, like, when I want to learn about, um, I'm just making up an example. If I wanted to learn about like how to be a good speaker, I would go to like Aristotle and see who like the most famous speaker ever, how do, how do they talk about things like that? And so with investing, I went back to like some of the oldest investors, like Warren Buffett and the person who trained him, this guy, Benjamin Graham. And I realized that it was very applicable and very effective. And so I created this model that would take the philosophies of those people and apply them to a data set of publicly available financial data and things that you get in the quarterly earnings conference calls. And it was super good. And basically I started selling it to some of my coworkers and some of my friends. So that's what that was. I actually applied to business and public policy school. I was like, yeah, I'll go to consulting. Then I'm gonna get an MBA slash MP. And then I'll be so prepared that I'll return to Silicon Valley as the ultimate startup founder, which is like, it's so, that was like totally the wrong way to think about it. And ended up like, you know, taking the GMAT and finding these schools and getting into a bunch of them. And then the very last moment, I decided to defer going to school at several places to do Live Day. And Live Day, I'll just give a high level overview and then we can go into anything that, that you're curious about. But I had been chatting with a friend at my consulting firm about just wanting to explore starting a business. And so we're literally like in the kitchen, just talking about ideas. We ended up coming up with like 30 ideas for things that we thought were interesting. And then we surveyed all our friends and coworkers about them. Like, would you want something to help you with this problem? We narrowed it down. We ended up picking a couple and focusing on them. And then those became the thing. Okay. Wow. Awesome. Wait, so you were, you started Nine Financial and did that during your time as a consultant. And by starting Nine Financial, I just mean that was the name I gave to my side hustle. So it's not like I've got like all these financial analysts running around. It's really like me working on this financial model that's really good and convincing people that they should pay me a little bit of money for it. Okay. 
Well, that's really cool because you literally created a product and then sold it without like the whole like fundraising route and everything. Like you just started from scratch, it sounds like. So it's good to know that that can be done. Okay. So Live Day, Live Day is similar, right? Kind of to the nudge. So how was like the transition there for you? Yeah, Live Day was really a precursor to the nudge. So the short story with Live Day is that I was very inspired by the idea of a planner set. Well, first of all, I became obsessed with this mission to help people do things in real life. I felt like, and I still feel this way, that technology is making it really easy to do these things that aren't very meaningful to me. Like it's so, it's like the quality of my lazy moments have been upgraded. It's so easy to just chill out. But what's really important to me in life is like getting out, spending time with people in person, meeting new people, doing things, experiencing this incredible world that we're only going to get to see like the tiniest, tiniest fraction. And I didn't feel like technology was making that easier. I felt like it was making harder. And so that was sort of the starting point for Live Day and also applies to the nudge. And I did a lot of interviews. I talked to a lot of friends and coworkers and family. And this idea of a planner friend kept coming up, which is like, I don't really have an app or a website that I use to figure out my free time because it is a lot takes a lot of willpower and initiative and research, but I've got this friend and they actually love that. They're obsessed with it. And all these people box filled all these ideas and they hit me up and they hit my friends up and they invite us to do things. And they're like this planner friend. And so with Live Day, it was like, well, there should be a platform for these people to share this knowledge that they have people. So that's what Live Day was, was an app and website that was kind of like a, a social network where people could share itineraries for things that they really liked. The transition to the nudge came from working on live day. It was doing okay. It wasn't doing great. It kind of struggled with the most important thing, which is retention. And people would say, man, I love live day. It has really good content, but I just forget to check it. I don't have a habit to check it. I was talking to my sister, Sarah, who was working in Munich for Apple actually at the time. And she was kind of involved behind the scenes of live day. And she was like, well, you know, I am kind of the planner friend for my expat crew in Munich. And a really big thing that I do is I reach out to them. You know, I text them and I'm like, hey, let's do this thing. What Live Day is doing is like giving them access to my Google Docs, which they would forget about if I did that. And so we tried this experiment of texting people and it kind of blew up. The retention was incredible. It started going viral. People talked about it in a totally different way. And so we then started basically like shut down the day, started a new company called The Nudge based on the idea of texting people things to do. Okay, gotcha. So you decided to just stop one, begin another instead of like transitioning Live Day, right? Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I actually read an interview about how your sister was working for Apple in Munich and then she came to help you co-found the nudge and so now you're working together that's really lovely so what has it been like starting a company with your sister and then what do you think like how do you think your unique skills kind of come together helping to grow it yeah it's been very fun and rewarding yeah i feel like we were really close when we started it but we're obviously closer now we spend all day together it's easy to take for granted, but when I zoom out, it's a really special thing to be able to do that. 
And we have another sibling, a brother. And when I contrast the two, it's like, wow, like I love them equally, but I spend like a million times more time with Sarah. And so it's really special. I love it. But we definitely have had to learn how to operate as kind of professionals together. So one thing that's great working with a sibling is that you trust each other. There's no filter, but having no filter can kind of be bad. Like I learned early on that we would interact with each other. Like I would say things to her that I would never say to anything, anyone else, not anything super messed up, but like, I try to be kind of thoughtful, right? If I'm giving someone feedback, but with Sarah, I'd be more inclined to be like, this is really shitty <laughs> and like, say it that way. And I don't think I would say that to anyone else. And I don't, wouldn't say that to Sarah now. So we kind of had to learn like how to communicate with each other. And early on when it was just us, it was tough just not having no filter, having sort of like sibling baggage and just kind of like butting heads. Now that the company has grown and we kind of have our own domains. And so it's working. It was working fine then too, but it's working better as we got bigger. You asked about our unique skills. I think we, we complement each other really well. Like Sarah is very on top of her shit. And I'm the kind of person who will like forget to pay my parking tickets and then have like a million dollar fine that I, that I have to pay. I'm very much like a one track minded person. I like. I'm like focused on what is the most important thing at any given time. And I'm all, I'm, I'm like both a strength and a weakness of mine is I can just focus on one thing and like people are talking to me and I don't even hear them. Whereas Sarah can kind of see the bigger picture and be like, Hey, you know, we have to pay our corporate taxes now. And she's obviously intimately involved in all the big things too, but we're just, we think very differently. And as we've gotten bigger as a company, I've noticed that that is a great thing. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. I have two older brothers and they now live on other sides of the country. So I could understand it'd be nice. It's precious when I have time with them. You just don't think about that when you're growing up. So yeah, that's awesome. And then another question, what were your goals starting out with the nudge? I think like setting goals definitely affects one's trajectory. And I think I'm just curious in general, how does one set goals with a company, with a startup, like, is it like metrics about how many users in a certain time frame, or like funding or like maybe an impact that you want to have through creating this product? So how did you kind of approach um, that when you started? Well, I think you need a long-term goal and you always need a short-term goal. We have always been very ambitious as a company. From the beginning of the nudge, our ambition was to create the one-stop shop for how people spend their free time. You've always felt like there is a huge gap in people's lives when it comes to like technology that helps us figure out our free time and encourages us to make the most of it and makes it really easy to make the most of it. And so this is a multifaceted thing, you know, like such a product, we need to know all the good things to do. It would need to know who my friends are. It would need to earn my trust. It would need to be proactive and help me like don't just wait for me to wake up and have a bunch of motivation, like help me do these things, nudge me to do these things. And our ambition is to do all of that on a global level. You know, like my parents, they need this kind of thing more than anyone. You know, once we've done it, we realized that it, it really applies to almost anyone. The idea that people wish they did more in their free time, but it's just hard. And so from day one, we had the long-term goal of like building a an iconic company that would stand the test of time that is all about helping people do things. We kind of half joke internally about how 
one day we'll make Nudge Land, which would be like an adult version of, of Disneyland. Because I very much admire a company like Disney that it's kind of insane that Disney pivoted from animated movies to a theme park. Like it's, it seems so normal if they think about Disney that way, but it's crazy that that's what they did. And I think it worked because those things both align under the need their long-term vision that they're going to deliver on in different ways. And so that's how we've always led up in that. But of course, you need to know what you're working on this week. And early on, I think the most important goal for, I mean, I really can only rate, relate to a consumer company. That's my expertise at this point. But if you're doing something consumer facing, retention is all that matters. You just need to have good cohort retention. Are people coming back to your product? Are they increasingly coming back to your product on their own? If they're not, you're in trouble. And if they are, you, you've got something great. I think that there's so many short-term goals that are a distraction from that. And one thing that early, first-time entrepreneurs learn is there's all these vanity metrics that make you feel good that aren't that. You know, like I remember I used to care about like app downloads, which like does not matter if people are coming back. It's probably what applied to your podcast, I imagine too, right? It's like, there are people increasingly actually listening to the podcast? You know, that would be like the version of the same thing. So I think that's really the ultimate short-term goal for any anything that is consumer-facing. Okay, that's great advice. Thank you. Okay, so speaking of like kind of retention in terms of the nudge and how you send texts with personalized recommendations for things to do in your free time, what does like the business model look like for that? Like how is like money involved? Does it aim to be profitable? Like it's like I almost don't even know what to ask. But just questions around that, I guess. Well, certainly it aims to be profitable and we're actually pretty close to that. I mean, you don't, you don't get to build ledge land unless you're very profitable. So we know that the, we found a lot about the business model. We studied the space a lot before we started the company. And most companies in this space, they start by selling tickets to things because that's the easiest way to make money in the short term. And the problem with starting with that is that your incentives are immediately not aligned with your users anymore. And you see this with all these startups that have failed in this space, which is that people don't really trust them because they shouldn't, because now the real customer is the, is the business. And one thing we've learned is that really great experiences don't need help with distribution. They're not going to pay a company like the nudge a ton of money. Now, this is not universally true, but like the companies that might want to pay us a lot of money might be the things that aren't very good and they really need help for people to find them. And that's like, that's not a universal truth, but, but really it's just dangerous to, to make money off tickets early on because now your real customer is the business, not the user. So we're like, you know what? We're not going to take a cent from anything that the nudge recommends for a while because we really, really want to earn people's trust. Please excuse the brief interruption, but I'm bringing to you a couple hard-hitting women in entrepreneurship statistics by Legal Zoom for a quick interruption to the show just to make sure you know we're staying and everything. 41.5% of entrepreneurs are women, while 58.5% are men. On average, female entrepreneurs earn 91 cents for every dollar a man earns. 7% of women are more likely to seize an opportunity than the typical business owner. A majority of women, about 74% who own a business, report feeling somewhat or very happy 
And then among Black, Asian, Hispanic, and white entrepreneurs, women tend to become business owners at a younger age than their male counterparts. Now that I have your attention, please subscribe or follow or rate or review if you're enjoying the show. This helps with enhancements to the show. Okay, back to our guests. That is essential. Because if you are going to let us text them, it's all about trust. And that'll set us up for things that we can do long-term. And so initially, you know, there was no business model. It was just, let's earn people's trust. Let's build the ultimate product for our users. Because you think about the nudge, like we'll send you a hike, you know, we'll send you like a fun thing that you can do in a park. And if we were doing ticketing, like it would be only events and it would have no chance of actually being like the one-stop shop for what you do because people ticketing and ticketed events are just like this one vertical of, of people's lives. And so... Of course, like we need to make money though. And so the plan was always to do a premium subscription, which is what we are right now. People could pay for premium features and then long-term sell, actually like do what we decided not to do at the beginning. Once we earn people's trust, sell tickets for things that involve tickets and take a cut of that long-term. Because if you think about like, if you can become a platform for people's attention in a space, So obviously like Airbnb is that for, you know, non-hotel places to stay. You can improve the experience for the user, but also make money by monetizing the the commerce that you drive. So obviously Airbnb monetizes the stays, but now they're monetizing the touristic experiences that you do when you're there. And so high level, it's that we're a subscription right now. And long term, we will start to, you'll be able to book things through the Dutch. Okay. Okay. So has that started yet or is that something to come? Oh, the ticketing has not started. So we've still to this day never like made a cent off of the experiences we recommend. Right now it's just Nudge Plus, the subscription. Okay. And how has that been? Like, how have you seen people react to that additional option? It's been good. I mean, we we have the challenge of we built a free product and got people used to it. And people used to say, I can't believe this is free. And we don't want to take anything away from people and we haven't really done that. But now it's like, well, the free product is pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty high bar to deliver beyond that, that people are going to pay for it. And we, I don't want to say pivoted, but we've kind of like micro pivoted a little bit. So we used to do content for other parts of life that were kind of adjacent to things to do in your city. So we used to have what we call nudge programs where there were sort of like these one-time programs for different things that were really important to you. So during COVID, we did something called, it was like the at-home nudge. And it was for couples to do at-home date nights when they couldn't go out. We used to do like fitness nudge programs where it texts you your workouts and tried cooking ones. We did a journaling one that would like text you your journal prompts. And those actually did great. And there's another, there's an alternate feature where the nudge is just like a platform of text-based programs. But ultimately our heart was really in just things to do in your free time. And so we, we cut all that stuff. And so now Nudge Plus is, it's just features that make the core product a little more useful. And it's going well, but, but certainly we do have the challenge. Uh, we're not going to take away the core product, but the core product is very valuable. It's not like, you know, Something like a calm where, yeah, you can get like a few free meditations, but really you got to pay if you want it. It's really the opposite yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. On that note, so I'm not very well versed 
in the world of fundraising. But I think myself and maybe a lot of other people would be curious how you grow a business like The Nudge, where the product is, probably takes a lot of work to create, but it's also free. So like, how was the process of fundraising? And did you have like some knowledge going in to founding The Nudge? Like, had you fundraised for anything before? And like, yeah, how did that go? Because like, it can be hard to grasp that you can spend years building a product. It's like, where do you get the resources to do that? And I think the answer is fundraising. But like, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious how you approach that. Yeah, well, I should clarify that we've had Nudge Plus for a couple of years now. So we're doing like millions in annual revenue off of Nudge Plus. So it's not like we're going out and like, yeah, we've got a potential of like the Nudge. Nudge Plus is like a, an effective business today and has been for okay. two years, but we didn't have that when we started. So I'm not saying that you need to like have any revenue to raise your first round of funding. So let's see, we raised the pre-seed round, then a seed round, and then a series A. And I had no experience with that. And initially I was really, really bad fundraising. I, I just had no idea how this world works. You like have a call with an investor and like, I don't know what they do after that call. I don't know what they're thinking when I'm, when I'm talking to them. And so I don't know if we got lucky, like we did have something exciting, which is that we had this product that was like really taking off organically and virally in San Francisco, which is like, we text people things to do. And that was very innovative at the time. And so that was really it, which is like, we had built that without any money and we had demonstrated traction. Now we probably had like 20,000 users or something like that in just one city. And so then we went out and raised our pre-seed round off of that. And so what we did was we funded it ourselves. You know, I like cashed out my 401k in order to, which is bad. Like I I don't recommend it because you pay like heavy fees to do that. But I sacrificed all the money that I had earned in order to fund the initial version nudge. Okay. Do you feel like you needed a product that would take like that money, obviously, to grow before you were able to get that amount of funding, like from other investors? Well, the thing that's hard about fundraising is that there are no rules. So I think that if you have a really compelling idea and you can explain it well, and you have a few people who are willing to commit to it and they seem like an impressive group, you can take that and pitch pre-seed investors and get the money that you need to start it without a product. There are plenty of investors who will give you a little money pre-product before you've done anything. Now that's not easy. None of it's easy, but that's, that's packed. But then of course, the more you've demonstrated, the easier it is. And it depends a lot on who you are, who your team is, what space you're in. If you're trying to do something in a a really cold space that no one cares about right now, you're going to need some traction, most likely. Obviously, the hot space right now is AI. And so if you've got an exciting AI idea and you've got, you're an engineer, you've got an engineer on your team who seems like they can execute it and you've got a good story, you can raise money with that product. It's not a guarantee, but you can do it. So it really just depends. I think that 
It's hard. So it's hard to give universal advice. I think what I would say to people is I don't accept the idea that you can't validate what you're trying to do without money or that you can't validate it without quitting your job. I think that if you really care, almost no matter what it is, you can find time to create some early crappy version of it and get some people to use it. And you can convince people to work with it, work on it with you, which is an essential skill long-term. If you like can't get anyone to help you with this thing, you're going to struggle to raise money for it. So I, I would say my blanket advice would be don't let fundraising be a barrier to anything at all. If you've got an idea, I guarantee there is a way for you to do it without raising money. I guarantee you, you just have to make it happen. Yeah. Great advice. Useful knowledge. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for sharing the part about using your 401k. I really like hearing people's stories about how they got started and if they invested things themselves. So um, now I would really love to ask you about like the process of hiring and like what you've learned from that. So one of the things I was thinking is, well, actually kind of two, two things. So things that you learned from like running a nudge, growing a nudge. So was there anything you learned about like user behavior throughout this process? And then also, how did you approach hiring? Like, did you try to hire people who you thought would like really be compatible with this product or interested in using it just so that they're that much more like motivated to work on it or grow it or maybe have like experience that would add to that? Yeah, those are my questions about learning or growing the nudge. So the first one was user behavior that we've learned about, things we've learned yeah. about users. Oh my God. Well, there's a million things. I think one thing I learned is that people are, if you have, if you're working on something that has a purpose to it, people are really willing to help out. Like from day one with the nudge, we've really leaned into asking our community what they think about things and talking to them. And this is pretty standard advice. Silicon Valley advice, talk to your users, but it's easy to ignore. And just in every step of the company, I've just been blown away about how thoughtful people are. Like people will seek out my email and send me long emails about a feature that they think should work a different way or something that they we change that they don't like. And I love that. That's like what motivates me the most is our community. And so I guess the thing I've learned is that people are not, and they, especially when you're a startup, if you lean into it, they won't view you as a data point either. If you, if you re reveal that you're people too, you reach out to them and talk to them, they're willing to help out and give you their thoughts. So that's one thing that I've learned. What was the other question? It was about hiring. Yeah. Like, do you in any way think about like, maybe this is an obvious question, but do you in any way think about like people hiring in terms of like this person would definitely be a user of this product or oh, would like uh, yeah yeah i'd say everyone at the company has two things in common one is that they care about the mission they believe that this is something that needs to change and the other is that they either use the product before they join or it's something that they want and that they need great advantage in having a product that everyone on the team wants for themselves because we spend all day arguing about how the nudge should work. And we talk to users too, but like 
we want our map to be better for ourselves because I'm trying to use it to figure out what to do when I go to Oakland this weekend. And, and there's so much value in having a product that people use and want to be great because it allows you to move a lot faster and you get a lot of input. The nudge is very, we hire people who are opinionated and down to respectfully debate because you can think of a startup as just a bunch of decisions. If you make the right decisions, you will succeed. If you make the wrong ones, you know, you won't. And you make decisions by taking in inputs and then you decide. And if everyone on the team is using the product and opinionated about the product and saying what they think about the product, you're going to have all this rich input to make a better decision. And if your team is not that, I don't, you know, you're doing a lot of guessing and I imagine it would be a lot harder. Good to know. Another question that's kind of specific, but I'm curious about on the same, in the same vein as hiring is when you're growing, like how do you decide which role you're going to invest in hiring someone for like the salary? Like I'm thinking like, okay, maybe you need like something happening tech. So you need an engineer, but how do you decide about like, oh, we need more marketing help or we need help with growth? Yeah. I'm really curious about that, what that it would even look like when you're the one you've received investing, you've received funding, and now you have to decide where to put that in terms of hiring someone on. Well, oftentimes it's the other way around, where when you raise money, you say what you're going <laughs> to what you're going to spend it on, especially early, especially early on your first few rounds of funding. Like you should have a clear plan for here's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to hire three engineers. We're going to hire head of growth. You know, we're going to do this. Now, after you get the money, it's up to you what you do with it. So you don't have to exactly follow that plan, but it makes sense to have that in mind when you raise money. That being said, the Nudge is a pretty lean company. Like, obviously, a lot of tech companies and startups have been going through layoffs because the economy being really bad. But we haven't laid anyone off. I don't even know if we could lay anyone off because we pretty much, we wait until it's obvious who we need and then we hire them you hope are going to be impactful. Like we kind of wait until it's very obvious, like, okay. And like right now I'm, I spend almost all my time thinking about product. And I think a product minded CEO is a very good thing, but we're kind of reaching this point where it's like, man, John can't be doing, you know, I'd like, I'm like doing like SQL a lot of the time, like giving people analytics out of the product, which is great that I can do that. And then I'm helping the team that way. But it's like, we need to bring in, you know, like a data-minded PM because it's just crazy that John's spending so much time on this thing right now. And it kind of, we just wait until it's obvious, right? Like, oh, so we're probably, or you, you don't know this, but we're working a lot with AI about the future of the dungeon. That has caused us to need more engineers. It's like, wow, we're really slowing down on shipping some of these features in our app because we're spending a lot of time building sort of the AI future part of our product. And so we need more engineers. So we kind of just wait until we need it. And then we hire someone. Okay. That's helpful. We didn't know that. Sometimes I feel like I hear that people just receive a big check and then it's up to them what to do with it. And that sounds like overwhelming. Well, that is true. That is technically true. You do receive a check and it's up to you what to do with it. But as you get further along in fundraising, there will be the expectation of what's the use of funds here. Are you going to spend all this money on marketing? 
Are you going to hire a bunch of engineers and spend nothing on marketing? Like when you raise money, typically you want to have at least a high level plan for what you're going to do and what you're going to try to achieve. And that should include hiring. Now, I'm sure there's examples of early, especially early on investors where someone's just like, all right, here's a check. See ya. Maybe I'll never hear from you again. That can happen, but it would make sense for you to at least have a rough plan of what you need to achieve your goals. And of course that includes people. Right. Okay. Good to know. So another question before I get to the last wrap up question is like, how does it work with collaboration with like organizations around a city and like also launching in a new city? Like how do you get the insider information? Like do the establishments involved receive any benefits? I mean, I guess you're driving people to them, to their business. But like outside of that and yeah, just like how does that work? I guess it sounds like maybe you had a little experience of that with Lib Day, but it's probably different now, I would imagine. Yeah, it's a lot more it's a lot more pure than I think people realize. So the nudge starts with what are the best things to do right now in the city, considering everything. It doesn't matter if you have a relationship with the business. It's just like, what are the best things to do right now? And let's tell people to do those things. We're not making any money from these businesses. Like the only consideration is what, what nudgers are going to want or what nudgers are going to need at any given path. And, and so because of that, the way it used to be our team creating the content, now it's, it's almost all community members. People can apply to become a planner on the nudge, which is essentially like a creator. And then they can freely post their favorite things to do. And if you follow them, you'll get a text when they create content. And then on top of that community of, of like curated planners, we will text to the community the things that we think are the most relevant. And so the businesses are interestingly like not involved at all. What do we think about it this way? The way that they get involved is they get a, they magically get a ton of business uh, that they weren't expecting. And then they hit us up and they're like, Hey, who are you? Like, we just got the most business we've ever had times. We just sold out like two months of comedy shows. Like, what is this thing? You know, can we give you money? And we were like, no, you don't need to give us money. But sometimes that will lead to partnerships. So sometimes we'll be like, no, you don't need to give us money. But, you know, how about you do like a cool series of comedy shows just for our community and you give them a discount? And that's how we'll have relationships with them. But it, it never starts with a relationship with the business. It starts with us thinking about what do nudgers need? It starts with our creators thinking about what are my favorite things to do and how am I going to share that with people? Okay. Very cool. I love that people can like, and then like they're helping you help other people. It's cool. Okay. So I've already asked you about goals for the nudge, nudge land. And then it seems like it makes sense that you started this product due to your passion and interest for getting people to be able to do their free time without a planet friend. Um, but I think the last question I really want to ask, and I ask most everyone this, uh, is like on the note of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs like myself, I think it's hard to give blanket advice. So I'm just going to ask you a more tailored question to like a problem that I'm encountering right now or like where I'm at. So advice for me at this point 
like I'm trying to build something on the side of a full-time job and it's very difficult to find the time it's also very difficult to find like momentum I think it's still just me I don't see a clear path for what this will evolve into like a product or a business and I also have other ideas flowing of something I could start on but realistically it's kind of hard to find the time to do that on top of this on top of full-time job so I guess my question is for like prioritizing staying motivated like managing your time and just continuing to decide like is this worth it what's the most important thing I can do right now to like keep driving this forward yeah well that's those are great questions I when live day started I was still doing consulting for a while it became pretty clear that nothing was going to happen until I quit I think that working on it while I was working was necessary. Give me a little, give me enough conviction that I could do it. And what I did was worked on the weekends. You know, you kind of just got to do it. But I regret not leaving earlier because have you heard of this idea of burning the ships? No. There's this story of some, I think it was an explorer and they arrived at I probably know this is probably like a terrible person who has been, you know, history has shown that they're like one of the worst people ever. But just for the sake of the story, there was like they arrived on, on some continent and the captain decided to burn the ships to force them to stay and figure it out. And that's a really great analogy for your what you're thinking about and what your podcast is about. I think that if you don't burn the ships, probably will get back in the boat and sail away. And I realized that way too late with Lib Day. It wasn't until I quit my job and then now it's like, okay, I've earned this much money. And then when this money is gone, I won't be able to pay my rent anymore. That was burning the ships for me. It was like, okay, no more screwing around. No more being shy about this thing. It's time to get serious. And so I think that there's many paths to success. You could stay at what you're doing and get to the point where you fully raise a defunded round while you're in your current job. But that's going to be a lot harder and a lot less likely. I think if you burn the ships, you'll force yourself to figure out, figure it out. I mean, at a high level, the thing that motivates me is that like, I don't really talk to our team very much about this because it's kind of dark, but it's really just that we're all going to die, right? We're all going to be gone. And we only get one chance to do what we want to in life. I really love, have you seen the Dead Poet Society? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the scene where Robin Williams, he takes the students to the, to this room in the school where there's old students, you know, photos of old students. And he's like, look at these students, you know, they're black and white photos. He's like, don't they, they look kind of similar to you, right? You know, like they're, they're young, they're excited. They've got these big dreams. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, well, all of these people are dead. And you know, a lot of them probably didn't pursue their dreams. And it, and it was just to highlight that, like, this is not a joke, this idea that we, we only have one life to live. And so that was always the most motivating thing for me. And it's really hard to appreciate that. It's so easy to forget and, and do it as this abstract thing. But the more you can really think about that, like, can you think about that every morning? I think it makes it a lot easier to do the scary things that are necessary. It's like, wait a minute. Who gives a crap about my, or, you know, especially when you're early, you don't even like have a lot invested in it. 
So that was helpful to me, though I regretted not not burning the ships sooner. Okay. That's great advice. Powerful. I've heard advice like you don't want to have a plan B because then there's more pressure for you to make plan A work. So, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to have a plan B. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are all the questions I have, but I just want to thank you so much for your time for doing this interview. This was really, really educational for me, and I'm hoping it will be for others. And it's really helpful to have you answer these questions with all your experiences and then also hear what you're doing with a nudge now. So thank you so much. Thank you. Actually, can I say one more thing? Of course. I just realized I I don't agree with that advice. I I think it's really important. This idea that you don't want to have a plan B to force plan A to work. So while I do think that it might be necessary for many people to actually leave their jobs to make something happen. You don't want to think about it as though, like, I'm going to set myself up so that if I don't succeed, I'm literally dead. You know, like that is very scary and it's never actually true. I think one thing that's helpful when taking risks is to realize that you're going to be fine. You're going to be totally fine. You know, like think through, okay, if I were to leave my job and do this thing and I run out of all my money, what would I do? You know, would, would I just get another job? Would I, you know, move home to my parents? Like people, many people are fortunate enough that they're going to be totally fine. So I think it is actually important to think about if it doesn't work out, what will I do? And acknowledge that like, oh, that's fine. You know, like it's, it's okay. I'll have no money and I'll get a new job and that'll be it. And I'll be okay. And so I think this idea of like, yes, sometimes you got to burn the ships. But I think it's going to be really hard to do that if you don't realize that you'll be fine no matter what. Yeah. Okay. Good to so, know. Yeah. Thank you. Looks good. Cool. But yeah. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. For sure. This was fun. Okay. See ya. Thank you for listening to Passion Project Pending. If you have any feedback on the show or you or someone you know would like to be interviewed about your passion project, Please head to my website, passionprojectpenny.com, to leave feedback or submit an application to be interviewed. I'd love to learn about your business. And I'm talking any sort of feedback. You don't like the way I speak? Let's hear it. You think I say that was really educational too much? I want to hear it. The good, the bad, the inevitably ugly. Thank you so much.